Hello, hello, hello. This is Truth to Toe. This is Dr. Walter Aka. Uh, this is our 100th episode. So I gathered the best of the best. Basically, everybody that had been on the previous episodes, all the different specialists. And we're here to just do a question and answer for um, all our listeners. We're going to start off with insurance because I know that's the one thing that I don't know much about and a lot of people don't know much about. So, Dr. Dennis, what is going on, sir? Hello, hello. Good evening. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Dennis. Greetings and salutations. As always. Here we go. So, why does my insurance not cover implants? Uh, hello, this is Greg. I uh, was on an episode a couple years, probably several years ago, actually. We talked a lot about the history of dental insurance. Um, I've been working in dentistry for a little over seven years. I'm a specialty regional manager, and I do work with some of the doctors that are on this podcast. Um, Doc, so, you know, the the short answer is money. Um, you know, I think you guys would all agree, uh, as far as clinicians go, that for a single tooth, you know, long term, it is the best thing. And it's actually uh, long term, the less the, the least expensive because um, you don't have to replace it every few years, you know. But the immediate upfront cost on the insurance plan is is more were they to cover it, you know. Uh, versus something that's removable or even a fixed restoration. So, um, you know, the short answer is money. Also, too, insurance companies traditionally are slow to adapt. You know, even though implants have been around for a, a long time, uh, removable and bridges have been around for longer. You know, and so um, it takes it takes time. Uh, I can I can say that you know in the years that I've been working in dentistry, uh, it is becoming more common. But still, more often than not, it's 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 not covered. So, what about the um? Because once you once you get your implant, right, then you need to put the crown on there. So, what about the abutment? Does the abutment have any coverage uh, from an insurance company? So, typically, if the implant is covered, the abutment and crown are covered uh, as well. Uh, unfortunately, though, many times because uh, you know the cost. Uh, exhaust the benefits so quickly by the time you get to the abutment and crown, there's not much coverage left. Um, there may be, but typically um, you know, the implant will exhaust on its own close to 50% or more of the annual benefit uh, that the patient's going to have. And then, you know, if you factor in just regular routine care and you know, chances are if they're getting an implant, they probably have to have the tooth extracted. Uh, so, you know, once you factor in all those other things, there's very little be- benefits left over on most plans for the abutment and crown. So, so you you mentioned maximum. So, what like for sorry to go off script, but <laughs> <laughs> this took me a week to organize, and Gary has blown it in less than two minutes. <laughs> all right. Well, go ahead, so, Gary. I mean, I'm just wondering, please. You know, for the for the average insurance, what what is the the yearly maximum coverage? Uh. The most, you know, and we're, you know, we're talking about PPO plans here. So, um, most insurance plans have an average of a $1,500 annual maximum. Uh, some go as high as 2000 or, or more. Um, but typically it's 1500 and then some go as low as a thousand or even less than that for a really, really basic PPO plan. Um, so you can see how quickly the benefits would get exhausted on an implant if you're only working with a thousand or, or $1,500. So it's like a tooth a year. <laughs> you can look at it that way, and certainly, I'm sure there are lots of people who who wait uh, and and treat their insurance that way. Uh, but yeah, it's that's about right, really. 
Hmm. They say that if you wait for every year, you don't see the dentist, it costs you about a thousand dollars. So, uh, oh, like where, where did you get that from, Gary? <laughs> I, I said I got it from them. Who? They you know them. They, them, you know. Those people. Got it. Got it. <laughs> okay. okay, Kyle. Well, I, I, I'd like to remind everybody that uh, Greg was on episode 13, uh, December 11th, 2017. So that was uh, one of my favorite episodes that I listened to before coming onto the podcast. So any of your dental insurance questions, that one was a fantastic episode. But moving on, uh, how come insurance companies downgrade treatment instead of paying the agreed upon treatment? Uh, this is going to sound like you've heard this before, uh, money, <laughs> you know, um, if the doctor and the patient agree upon a, um, you know, a treatment or a restoration, um, and then there's an alternative, uh, and that's how most insurance plans will, will describe it, alternative benefit. They won't say downgrade because they don't want to, um, they don't want to sound like they're doing that. They want to sound like they're paying and so they'll apply an alternate benefit, and uh, typically it's a less expensive, well, not typically, it's always a less expensive uh, treatment or restoration than what the doctor or the patient agreed upon. So that can range from, you know, if the doctor diagnoses a composite filling, the plan will only pay towards amalgam, up to, for instance, depending on how many missing teeth there are, if the doctor diagnoses a bridge, for instance, or even an implant, the insurance may downgrade to a partial because it's cheaper, you know. So it just depends on the plan uh, and that specific plan's provisions and limitations and exclusions. But again, it's to pay less money than what the uh, diagnosed treatment is. I'm sorry. Did you did you say that an insurance company will downgrade an implant to a partial? Yep. That a, happened to me. A lot of, that is true. a lot of missing teeth. They certainly some plans will again. Yep. It depends on the plan. Wow. Some plans will. Yeah. Yeah. They actually um that they did that happened to me this past week, and then they were like, okay, can you give me a good narrative for why we need to cover this implant? So I used the ADA's actual code and and an explanation of why you need implants, and they were like, oh, we need a stronger narrative. I'm like, what's more, what's stronger than research and ADA? Like, if you can tell me, if I can put God in there somewhere, I would. But there's no research that can be based on that, you know. So yeah, so that's something that we're I'm fi- actually fighting about right now with uh, insurance, and I think it's Delta. But don't quote me on that one. Delta is one of the ones that on some oh, good. plan. I was yeah, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's a huge downgrade. It, it is. Thank you. It is. It can be a big adjustment. Yeah. Or because a big I, downgrade. Yeah. I used to complain about them downgrading a, a core buildup to an occlusal filling. <laughs> Which to me is absurd right, because one's right. touching the pulp of floor and the other one doesn't even touch <laughs> touch the roof of the pulp chamber. But um, but that's not downgrading an implant to a partial. Yep, like that's that's have, crazy. Uh, that was probably the first time I've heard that they actually downgraded to that level. I would have thought maybe mm-hmm. like a fixed unit or something. Yeah, but to go all the way down to a partial. Is there anything the patient can do in those instances to get their insurance to potentially not downgrade it? Soon, I don't know. <laughs> in my opinion, well, you, can, you can appeal. The, the provider can. Um, uh, I don't really go back and forth with narratives anymore. I just go straight and do a peer to peer appeal. Oh, and I've been successful with those. Yeah, that's instead a, of playing the whole narrative game. 
That's good advice, Doctor Morris. I I tell lots of I still, I tell lots of providers, you know, when you when you see that request stronger narrative, I would immediately go right to, I want to speak to the dentist that reviewed this claim. I would immediately go to that, uh, exactly. you know, demand to speak to that person that uh, another clinician who's going to tell you why you're wrong clinically. You know. <laughs> Okay. That's smart. Yo, uh, Greg, can you talk about uh, care credit? I know a lot of offices use care credit, but can you explain care credit and how it actually works for patients? Absolutely. So think of it as 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 financing for dentistry. You know, um, it is it, it is a way to spread the cost out over time um, for the patient. Uh, the way it works is like any other you know loan or line of credit. You have to you know, meet certain criteria with your uh, credit score and income and, and things like that. And then the care credit will approve you for whatever amount they are comfortable extending you. And then you can use that to pay towards treatment. Um, there's a couple of different ways you can choose like a fixed payment where your payment is always going to be, for instance, $99 a month or $100 a month or whatever. Or you can just divide it out over a certain term of six, 12, 18, or even 24 months, depending on the amount that you're financing. Uh, so you do have to check your credit. You know, it does, you know, you do get a, a hit on your uh, credit report. Okay. So um, it actually does affect your credit. It does. It okay. does. Uh, any, you know, there's, there's a, there's multiple, there's lots of people out there, uh, different companies um, that operate like care credit and they all in some way, shape or form are going to have to check your credit um, if they're going to be financing. All right. Thank you, Greg. Really appreciate it. Let's move on to uh, endo. Um, I know, Dr. Dennis, you're an endodontist, um, but we'll, we'll hold you off until last year. Well, we have uh, Dr. Scott on. Uh, Dr. Scott, what's going on? How's everybody doing today? Oh, good, man. Great, great. So, Dr. Dennis, right. please go ahead and ask uh, Dr. Scott your question. So, um, <clears throat> there are several endodontic questions that, that uh, came to light that we we're going to discuss. And the first one was from, these are basically from patients. And the first one was, uh, will this treatment hurt? How would you respond to that, Dr. Scott? I would respond to that uh, by telling the patient that root canal treatment should be a comfortable procedure. Um, now, it's not a day at the beach, you know, you're not going to be sipping a margarita or relaxing, but it should be comfortable, as comfortable as possible. Uh, root canal specialists have years of extra training and deeper levels of understanding when it comes to achieving uh, profound local anesthesia. And this is going to ensure that you have a comfortable experience uh, during the root canal procedure. So to answer your question, root canal should not hurt. If your root canal is hurting, you need to go to a different doctor. Mm. Can, so, can I follow up uh, with that question? Yeah, I got a question. I, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, in regards to what we would consider a hot tooth, uh, can you always get the person 100% uh, complete anesthesia where they're not going to feel anything? Or are there some instances where, look, uh, you're going to feel this a little bit. I apologize. We'll get through it as fast as we can. That's for you, Dr. Scott, to answer. Okay, so <laughs> I, I think the understanding of what local anesthesia is is first the most important thing. Um, local anesthesia is not removing all feeling. Uh, you're going to still feel pressure because you're alive and your brain is still working. So pressure will always be there if you have a hot tooth. And in the case of an infection or something like that, it's definitely going to be possible that it can be some parts of the procedure that are uncomfortable. Uh, but it should not be painful, per se. Now, can you always get a patient numb? Not always. There are experts that have, you know, issues of certain teeth and in different clinical situations. You may have to 
either give a patient some type of medication or bring them back or even have to go directly through the bone with, you know, intraosseous injections, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully that kind of clarifies that part. Right, I'm answer that question too. Yes, please. And Gary. I'm, and, and I'm going to say there are definitely situations where you're not able to get the patient now. So as Dr. Scott said, if there's an infection, like if you have a tremendous amount of uh, swelling on your face, that tissue is going to become very acidic and the anesthetic is, is not going to be effective. Also, if like uh, you uh, mentioned, uh, Dr. Dumpert, a hot tooth, right? So the tooth is so inflamed that it's going to be very hard to get the tooth uh, profoundly anesthetized. So in a situation with a hot tooth, if you're not able to, you know, I'll probably give a patient half as much anesthetic as uh, the maximum amount, which is four times as much as I would normally give anyway. At that point, if I'm not able to get the patient numb, then I'm going to bring that patient back, uh, give them a steroid, and then I'll be able to get them numb at the next appointment while they're on the steroid because that'll help decrease the inflammation. As far as a patient with their face is swollen, I give them an option. I say, hey, if you don't want to come back, we can do this treatment, but I'm probably not going to get you down. That, you know, you're probably going to be, it's probably going to hurt, going to suck. Uh, this is what people talk about when they're like, oh, I hate root canal. Like, oh, this is that situation. Or we can give you some antibiotics. You can take those antibiotics for seven days. We can decrease the swelling, decrease the pressure. You can come back and it'll be a much more pleasurable experience. But there's definitely situations where you're not able to get the patient completely numb. Well, let's talk about, you talked about swelling, you know, and everything like that. What about antibiotics? When do you prescribe I, antibiotics to patients who need endo? Uh, well, I, as I just mentioned, swelling, I would, <laughs> I would get them antibiotics. No, well, I mean, every, every, uh, <laughs> every, every uh, general dentist usually says, oh, let me give you some antibiotics and send you to the endodontist. Every? Come on. All right. Okay. All right, and I, minus, I, okay. Min, minus Kyle. I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Dr. Scott answer that question first, and then and then I'm or no, I'll, I'll answer first, and then Dr. Scott can can answer it. Whoever. All right. So, uh, as far as antibiotics, um, there has to be an indication for for anything in the like any medication. There has to be an indication for prescribing that medication. Right. If there's no indication, then why are you taking that medication? So, like, would you give someone who doesn't have high blood pressure? Lisinopril, like that, would, that doesn't make any sense. So if there's not an indication of an infection, antibiotics treat infection, then why would you prescribe that medication to that patient? And do so, you believe do you believe that antibiotics are being overused by dentist for endo? Oh, whoa, 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 for endo? For for okay, you mean we'll by start, endodontist. Well, you're you you're general, you're an endodontist, right? so I'm asking you about endo. Yes, no, endodontist. But, Endodontists are not overprescribing antibiotics. Okay, what about uh, de- uh, endodon- um, endo and uh, just overall antibiotics? Are we u- overusing antibiotics in dentistry? Uh, so, is, are, is anybody dentistry can answer this as a one. whole yes. overusing antibiotics? Anybody yes. can answer this one. Yes, they are for sure because they're. I have plenty of patients that come in with pulpitis and they're on amoxicillin, right. and I'm like, why? In my mind. I'm like, why would you give someone an antibiotic for inflammation that has uh, the nerves? This is a this is live tissue. There's no bacteria in there, so it's they need ibuprofen. They need 
an anti-inflammatory, not an antibiotic. Right. Uh, and this, that, is more, this is more patient driven because even if it's not in regards to an infection, say uh, if they had joint replacement, uh, their knee or their hip, and they've taken antibiotics for years prior to coming to see the dentist. Now, you know, however many years ago that the American Dental Association did a, a literature review and found that it's not effective. However, patients that have been in on it for years well, I, I really want you to write me a prescription because I had a joint replacement. This is what I've always been. I, I still get patients to come in and said, I, I had rheumatic fever when I was right. a kid. Right. I need to take an antibiotic. No, you don't. Right. Well, I, I would just feel more comfortable if I had one. And that, then it becomes uh, more of a, a practice management issue than and a patient management issue than uh, handing out, you know, two grams of amoxicillin for somebody that. Uh, there's that again that battle between becoming being a right exactly dr morris real quick still on the antibiotics then whenever you do um bone graft membrane do you use antibiotics if you're using um like aller alloderm or anything like that do you yes, prescribe I, to patient antibiotics for what like for what reason i mean i do the same thing but for what reason like why are you yeah. prescribing antibiotics in this situation because I'm putting something forward into their body that didn't come from them. And so I prescribe antibiotics as a prophylactic, I guess. Okay. CYA. Okay. Hey, what, Dr. Scott, is Dr. Scott? Dr. Uh, Scott. I was going to ask Dr. Scott. Um, actually, moving on to another topic, we all saw that um, Netflix special, uh, Root Cause, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and they ended up taking it off of Netflix, but... A lot of patients are still discussing that and talking about that. So can we just get to the bottom of root cause and what were some of the issues that you guys saw on root cause? And I know Dr. Dennis is going to be colorful with this. Can we explain this. what root cause was? Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to let Dr. Scott go ahead and because and, I've been kind of taking over here. So I'm going to let me, I'm gonna him again. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Scott. Oh, what's the what's the question exactly? About about root cause the the Netflix documentary root cause that talked about how um we're basically poisoning ourselves with by leaving by doing endodontics and leaving uh, dead teeth is I think how they classified it as it's a dead tooth would you ever leave like a dead limb uh, attached to your body and that's causing so the all these other issues. The question is, do you have patients that ever ask you about that documentary, and uh, what do you say to them? You know, what what is your response? Actually, I had a couple of patients ask me about it when it was kind of like hot news, uh, when everybody was kind of talking about it. Uh, but my response to them was that it's not based by any type of scientific fact, yeah. you know, the, the stuff that they're stating. Uh, so I, I just told them fake news. That's all. That's all I really I, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not the clinician, but I sat there and watched that on a Saturday night with my wife and I was yelling at the TV. My wife also <laughs> thought I was crazy. And I, I, I just kept yelling the same thing over and over. Correlation does not equal causation. Like the, the there was it's, it was obviously just incredibly bad and flawed science. And there was no no good science in that at all at all. I was yeah. confused by the Australian dude. Oh yeah, in the, was... the narrative, like I was like, what is this? What is this? <laughs> the one that the one that couldn't sleep or like use the bathroom, <laughs> and then blamed it on the root canal. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite it's actually interesting um uh, i had i had a patient who came in and he, he had 
I mean, he had a couple of root canals. Let's say he had one on each quadrant. Um, and then he had, then he needed another root canal, but that, that film came out. I mean, this tooth was, you know, there was nothing wrong with it except the, the pulp was inflamed. Um, but he didn't want to do it, uh, because he was having some, he was having some back pains and he's tried to say it was because of the last root canal that he had received and he didn't want to get another root canal, uh, because he was afraid that, you know, like I said, the, the root canals were what was causing his, his back pain. So he went and got, all the teeth pulled out that had root canals, and then he also got the tooth pulled hurt. out. Yep, he got the tooth pulled out that needed a new root can- that needed a root canal treatment, and like you said, his back still hurt. So did he did he get implants? <laughs> he, I don't know. I, didn't, I, I hope uh, not. He wasn't my patient, so I, I really really him. hope. Well, no, because in the documentary, they they talked badly about implants as well. You're right. Yeah, titanium because implants. titanium implants. So yes. that's what I was wondering. That's yes. what I was wondering. ceramic implants are okay. They're doing. <laughs> <laughs> they're completely fine true. you know they're both in, <laughs> they're both in, inert but you know what do we know they're non-gmo <laughs> vegan non-gmo yes <laughs> doctor, doctor Dog, these are free range implants that, <laughs> you 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 act like this would not be somebody's uh marketing scheme I have free range oh, sure implants. These are these are vegan. <laughs> Doctor Dumpling. Beyond meat. Doctor Dumper, do you have any questions? Uh, so, after I saw my the endodontist and got my root canal, they're recommending that I go back to my general dentist and do the crown there. Why Why can't you just do the the crown uh, when you did the the root canal? As well, you just, well, you referred to me uh, by your general dentist, and they, like I'm specialist in doing root canals. They they specialize basically in doing restorative procedures. I haven't the last crown I did was over eight years ago, so you definitely don't want me doing your crowns. But I can do your buildups for you if that's needed, just to uh, strengthen that tooth up and prevent any reinfection in, in the meantime until you get uh, your final coronal coverage. But uh, you definitely want to go to somebody who does crowns regularly uh, to have it restored. That, that and, is a very. How, uh, long, how long will the the root canal process take? Whenever I come to see you, that's going to be a case by case uh, answer right there. But most times, molar root canals take about forty five minutes to an hour um, for most endodontists. <clears throat> and then, but you know, <laughs> what does it mean? Depends on the tooth itself. <laughs> uh, but yes, I would say about forty five minutes to an hour usually. But you should plan to be at your endodontist office for about that. So, according to the uh, AAE, the average appointment time, length of time for for a endodontic appointment is sixty seven minutes. Okay, so well, it's, it's about an hour. Okay, it should be there about an hour. So, what's the difference between average? What's the difference between having an endodontist do a root canal versus a general dentist doing a root canal? That's like, that's like asking, about, that's like asking the difference between. Uh, Walter shooting a three pointer and Steph Curry shooting a three pointer. Right. Well, it's about that's even. What Steph Curry does all it's day, about even. every day. He's got special. <laughs> he's got extra years of training. Uh, so it's it's that's all we do, and that's what that's what we live and breathe. We we live and breathe root canal treatments. Uh, so that's basically why you want us to do the treatment for you. We have all the equipment necessary. If there are any uh, mishaps that occur, or if you have any calcified canals or anything that's so small that can't be seen unless you have a microscope. Uh, endodontic offices also usually have 3D imaging, so we can see things that other people just uh, can't see or just don't have the tools or the training uh, to see. So that's why I would recommend 
uh, root canal treatment being completed at the anodontic office. You know, in most oh, root canals. Well, I'm an anodontist, oh. so you're you're asking you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> pretty biased. Yes. He said <laughs> pretty oh, oh, pretty biased. Oh, oh. Yes. Oh. Um, oh. Okay. Uh, so what's what's the research say between having your root canal done by a general dentist versus having your root canal done by an endodontist? I'll, I'll, so, I'll, but, but I would say most most root canals are done by general dentists uh, to answer that question. So a lot of them are successful, and I'm very happy that they are. Um, uh, root canal is actually a very predictable procedure um, if done correctly, uh, getting all the bacteria out of there and all the inflamed tissue. So you have a very high chance of success. Uh, but the endodontic success rate is going to be basically about 90, it's over 95%. That's what the new research is coming out of. Uh, so that's why I would recommend uh, going to the endodontist. All right. Let's move on to perio. Okay. That's, this is when I get a little, uh, this is, this is my, this is, this is my love right here, perio. Okay. Uh, Are we talking about have, Lanap? You know what? <laughs> we will not talk about Lanap. Maybe. <laughs> we, listen. <laughs> Dr. Morris, don't start. <laughs> okay. Um, if if you want to know, we had a episode a few episodes ago where Dr. Morris and I discussed Lanap in the most uh, professional manner. Yes. <laughs> it's all love. So no, who do we have here to answer perio questions? We have Dr. Morris, periodontist, and well, a hygienist who works at a perio office. Is yes. That yes. So we have. We. I mean, we literally have the whole entire team here. Uh, what's the best way to explain to a patient uh, how a bone graft and extraction will actually benefit them? Dr. So, Dr. Morris, go ahead. Time. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Um, thanks, Walter. You're welcome. <laughs> like, I, have one. Oh, I was ready and then like, okay, and then I I'm, now I'm scared. You were both going to answer at the same time. <laughs> Fear. Um, so I, yeah, because it is an additional expense. So they look at me like, do I really need this? And um, I try to, you know, talk to them about what are their future plans with the tooth? Do they want to replace the tooth? And if they do, what time frame? Um, and also how bad the infection was um, prior to removing the tooth, okay? And I just let them know that in placement of the bone graft, they're like, where does it come from? You know, you know, may come from a cadaver, depending on what I'm doing, or maybe from, you know, a cow, and we talk about that. And I let them know we need to maintain the width and the height of the bone for a week so we can place a dental implant in the future. And that it will save them thousands of dollars in the long run because if we don't put the bone graft, the bone will shrink very much so and then we'll need to do a much bigger graft called a ridge augmentation, which can run three, four times the price of that bone grafting at the time of extraction. Have you ever had any patient um, question, especially the, uh, the, the bovine uh, bone and say like, I don't want you know, I don't want the animal products or cadaver. A, I'm a vegan, or, or you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's not too bad. They kind of get a little grossed out with the cadaver, but I uh, reiterate how um, over the course of the next 90 days that their body cells swim in, eat away the cadaver bone, and replace it with your body's own bone. And so, over that course of time. There will be, you know, that cadaver bone won't even be in their body anymore. It's broken down and replaced by their own natural bone. 
And Greg, what kind of insurance coverage have you seen for bone grafting during an extraction? So the most common time it's going to be covered is for what, you know, Dr. Morris was mentioning was for socket preservation. You know, uh, that's that's when you see it covered. Um, however, that's not that common. <laughs> um, you know, so if it's being placed for a future restoration, you know, then. You know, you've got to make sure that's in the chart and it's noted very clearly. Uh, but, you know, more often than not, and, and really a lot of the direction that's given to the front office or, or the operations team uh, is, is is not to expect coverage on bone graft because most plans do not cover it um, for, for that purpose. It's more common to see it covered for uh, osseous surgery. Uh, that's, that's, you know, when it is covered, it's covered there. Um, but uh, even that's not all the time. All right. Uh, Katrina, let me ask you a question. How uh, how should a patient maintain and keep that implant for as long as possible? Should they come in earlier for appointments or how does that all work out for them? Because I feel like a lot of people don't understand how to really maintain and keep their implant. Yeah. So um, in our practice, we have an interesting um, perio uh, protocol when it comes to our implant cases. We let our patients know right out the gate when they come in and they have an implant placed by us. We do have a warranty program with regards to our implant placement, but that of course comes with a caveat that you do need to be maintaining that implant. And so we see patients for their ready to restore appointment. We have the patient go to their GD have their uh, crown placed on their implant, we have the patient come back and we do a post-crown check. So we'll actually uh, evaluate if there's any residual uh, cement around the area. If it's a, a cemented in crown, um, we'll take a look at occlusion and contact for screw retains. And then we let the patient know if we do see any residual cement, we go ahead and debride all of that complimentary for our patients. And we educate them that our our uh, warranty program is heavily based on their ability to maintain their implants. We see them back uh, once a year for what we call an annual implant exam. Um, and this is kind of a little, I don't know if you guys are doing this in, in your offices, but this is our little secret here. Every once in a while, you get a patient who's um, an endo case where it's a failed endo treated tooth. And so they end up, or, you know, they get like hit in the mouth or something, whatever, you know, with a firecracker and they have to get an implant placed on that like one tooth. I don't know. I'm trying to be festive for the holidays. So they get hit in the mouth. Okay. So that, and, and, you know, and that occurs, but that's kind of a small percentage of the patients that come into our practice and have dental implants placed. Most of our patients are coming in because there's a hopeless or questionable prognosis to a tooth and that particular tooth needs to be extracted due to perio conditions. And so this, we know the AAP told us in 2018, perios, you know, very rarely is it truly considered localized. We know it's, it can be systemic, right? And so we know that these particular patients are experiencing perio on one tooth where they're now at a hopeless prognosis and need to have that tooth extracted. That's a patient who likely has other perio conditions in other areas of their mouth. So we see these patients back for what's called an annual implant exam, and we do comprehensive perio charting on these patients. And so if we, of course, see the opportunity, now we've established a relationship with our patients. We have the dialogue about, you know, connective tissue grafts, if that's what's necessary, keeping them on shorter, you know, perio maintenance programs, integrating um, non-surgical therapy, uh, you know, things like that, if that's what's necessary. And of course, we work in tandem with our general docs on, you know, how it is that we integrate that. But we educate our patients on that. We also, when they come back in for their post-crown check, they actually meet with a hygienist 
Um, and so the hygienists do comprehensive oral hygiene instruction on how to keep that implant clean. Um, and so they have dedicated time to be able to learn how to maintain that implant long term. Okay. Um, this question is kind of, okay, so Dr. Sanaz, uh, Dr. Morris, um, you can answer whichever order, but how many implants did you place before you felt comfortable placing implants? Me? Anybody, um, yeah, yeah. How many implants did you place before you actually were like, you know, I'm actually really good at this now? Dr. Morris here, and um, I still haven't had that right. that moment. Um, you know, I, I, because I just, I don't know. It's just my personality type. After 10 years, so the implants that I placed in 2014, if I can see them in 2024, and know that my percentage of, um, you know, successes are what's that in the literature, then maybe I'll feel comfortable. Um, but to me, it's an ongoing process and it's something that just continually, continuously needs to be monitored. But what I did change up is how I approach my cases, which I do almost all of them um, completely guided. And so with me doing the cases guided and 3D planning the cases, then it's setting up for the um, the restoration to have better occlusal uh, context and, and forces and positioning of the implant and uh, and hopefully overall success. So, And you, Dr. Sanaz? Um, I actually feel the same way. Um, every case is different, so you can never be like, I feel comfortable with this. Because, you know, sometimes you'll have the bones, sometimes you won't, sometimes you're placing an implant, you're doing a sinus at the same time. It all just, it varies. So, I mean, if you can plan, you feel more comfortable going in. Um, that's, that's another thing I think that initially, like, when you're in residency, they tell you to do, like, the guides and stuff, and then you do them, and then when I got out, I wasn't doing guides and then I went back to it as well because it's just, it makes life so much easier for restorative. So you're never going to be a hundred percent comfortable. And that's actually a good thing. I mean, that, that's the difference between, you know, the cowboys that just go in and do it. Whereas if you're always cautious, you know, the chances of messing up are a lot less. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I feel a hundred percent confident and sending a tooth that needs to be extracted, it needs to implant to a periodontist. That's the, that's that was that. that was beautiful. That was beautiful. Wow. So Who sweet. knew? Who knew Gary was so poetic? <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Who knew he was most <laughs> my goodness. All right. Let's uh let's move on to uh Pedo. Okay. Uh we have Dr. Wilkes. What is going on? And I will say, um What's up? Uh, he is my daughter's um, a pediatric dentist, so I'm a little biased, so I won't ask. Yeah, yeah he's awesome. Uh, my daughter doesn't like many people, if anybody knows her. Not 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 a lot of people at all, actually. So, and, and she, you know, she likes him and just never cried once. So I'm pretty biased. So that is true. <laughs> so I'll leave it. I'll leave it to everybody else to ask the questions. And that goes to say something. If a, a dentist, even a, a periodontist, a specialist. Uh, will send their kid to, you know, a pediatric dentist where I, I think uh, pediatric dentists are the unsung heroes in, yeah. in dentistry oh, because yeah. they are, that is a difficult 
patient population to work with. I couldn't do it. Hey, well, man, you guys I'm, are... You know, more often than not, you're not just dealing with your patient. You've got a potential yeah. helicopter mom to deal with, oh, or you've got brother and sister in the room with the patients and mom or something like that, you know, so you're not just having to manage uh, your patient. You're having to right. do quite a bit more. So yeah, I think, I think, right. I think Dr. we're all is amazing. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll second that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we drive about, is, go ahead. But Dr. Wills is also my daughter's uh, pediatric <laughs> wow. as well. So, wow, and okay. I, I drive like, Almost oh, thirty man. miles <laughs> to go to, <laughs> to, uh, to bring her there. Yes. Hey man, both yes. of you guys. Yeah. Dude, I'm, I appreciate that, man. Thank you guys. <laughs> so yeah, I appreciate that. So we definitely uh, well, let's let's get to the questions. We, and Gary can be poetic at the end for that one. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask the question. <laughs> go ahead, Gary. <laughs> okay. All right. So so when should I first bring my child to the dentist? So the rule we always go by is the first tooth, when the first tooth erupts in or by the first birthday. And, you know, a lot of a lot of patients will ask, you know, well, what's the point? Or a lot of parents will ask, what's the point of me bringing my my child in if they only have one or two teeth? And, you know, that first visit is not necessarily to that you're worried about caries or like cavities at that point. It's more so an educational visit. So. We're talking about things at that visit like how many times a day do you brush? What type of toothpaste are you using? Is it fluoridated? Is it non-fluoridated? Common dental injuries that you have for kids who are six months to a year old, you know, they're learning how to walk. Um, different type of habits. Are they thumb suckers, nail biters, pacifier users? Um, uh, diet, you know, what to eat, what not to eat. Are they going to bed with a bottle in their mouth? You know, it, it's, it's more so an educational visit. Um, during that, that first trip, but you always want to at least try to get the, your first dental visit in at least by your first birthday. So it's not to get more money out of the insurance company <laughs> <laughs> when they only have one or two teeth to clean. <laughs> well, well, we can't speak for every, every uh, pediatric dentist. We can only talk no. to Dr. Wilkes. Hey, man, come on. Nah. Next question. Is is it bad to put my child to bed with a bottle? Absolutely. I mean, unless they don't, at at the point where they don't have any teeth, you know, but um, anytime, that's one of, it's actually one of the most common causes of dental caries is uh, nighttime feeding uh, with a bottle. And I mean, you'd be surprised, like, it's not necessarily just milk. It's also... Uh, kids who nurse multiple times throughout the night, you do see them with a lot of um, cavities, usually on the upper anterior for teeth. Um, we have parents that, I mean, it's like I said, you have parents that will put uh, soda in the bottles. I know it sounds like something that you people would not do, but soda in the bottle, milk, okay. anything other than water at nighttime, if you're feeding multiple times throughout the night. Unless you're, and we always tell parents, if you do have that situation, because I mean, I have two kids as well, you know, sometimes they will wake up in the middle of the night, they'll want a bottle. Um, the, and I know once they go to sleep, the last thing you want to do is wake them up by like brushing. But we always tell parents if you can get like a little two by two or a little four by four gauze, you just dab like either a little bit of like toothpaste or a little bit of like kids mouth rinse on that and just to try to wipe off the film 
that is left on the teeth so that you're not actually waking them up, but you're doing at least something. Um, but that is one of the most common. We call it baby bottle decay in pediatric dentistry because you see it a lot. It's very common. Um, but you do not want to let your kids go to sleep with any kind of like milk or that film on the teeth like that. It's very problematic. And eventually it will break the enamel down. You will get cavities. And we yeah, do all you gotta do is, all you gotta do is Google baby bottle rot. It'll scare the yeah. heck out of you. Yeah. Right. And I mean, right. we, we have, unfortunately, you know, we do, we do, right. do, uh, take it to the living room. We take do, do uh, one and two year olds, like with IV sedation, uh, or, I'm sorry, not one year olds, but two and three year olds, you know, for IV sedation because they, they have a mouthful of, of cavities and it's, and it's almost always because they drank milk at nighttime or they were breastfed throughout the middle of the night, like multiple times. So natural yeah. breast milk is also uh, able to cause cavities for, for kids. Absolutely. It's not, it's not necessarily like it's self cariogenic, but yes, it, it breast milk and, and feeding throughout the night, nursing throughout the night it will absolutely cause uh baby bottle decay. Absolutely. Uh-oh. Okay. Well, here's a question. So, I mean, they're pediatric teeth, right? They're, they're baby teeth. They right. come out. So the question that I have is, uh, what does it matter? Why does it matter that they have cavities here or there or whatever, right? They're baby teeth. They're going to fall out anyway. Right, right. So that's, a, that's one we get a lot. Um, the, the big answer is, you know, a cavity is, is, is actually, you know, uh, a type of infection, you know, in the mouth. So the thing is this, you know, let's say you have a three-year-old, four-year-old patient who has a cavity on a molar tooth. And, you know, the parents are like, oh, well, you know, it's a baby tooth that's going to fall out. But the question is, when is it going to fall out? So some of those molars in the back of the mouth, you don't lose until you're 10, 11, 12. Some kids don't even lose them until they're 13 or 14 years old. So you're going to let that cavity sit in the mouth from 3 to 12. So we're talking about like nine years. The chances that that cavity is going to stay small like that is slim to none. So you leave that in there. More than likely, it's going to get bigger. It's going to lead to possible pain, abscess, infection, fracture of the tooth because it gets so brittle. Um, and then if it abscesses and stays so long, it can start to affect the permanent tooth that's growing under it. So it, it's more so the, the longevity of the tooth. If I have an 11 or a 12-year-old who has a cavity, and I can look at the x-ray and tell they're probably going to lose this within the next like four to six months, I'm more willing to say, the same thing that the parent is saying, oh, it's a baby tooth. Is there a point of me wasting my money restoring it? No, just let it fall out. But in most cases, whenever you have like cavities present on baby teeth, you need to fill them because it, it's going to, it can progress. It more than likely is going to progress and they're going to have that tooth for a while. Well, what about the patient's uh, habit? Does that, does that uh, come into play? Because if they're not willing to, then are the parents and the, and the child aren't brushing their teeth when they're four or five, uh, and I mean, and that's the mindset, then I would guess that when they're 12 or 13, they still wouldn't be brushing their teeth. Yeah. I mean, and that is what you see. You know, the the biggest thing is diet and your oral hygiene. So if you're not brushing and you're not teaching those good habits at three and four, the chances that you're going to have a lot of uh, high caries rate when you're 12, 13, and you get these permanent teeth in is, is, is very likely. So, um, I mean... And especially with younger children, diet is so important because 
you know, a lot of kids, they're, they're kind of, some of them are picky eaters. They're not eating the best and like most healthy foods, sticky foods, a lot of sugary things, sodas, juice, stuff like that. So if their hygiene is not right at a young age and you don't set that, that standard, that's just like my son. He's 20 months old. I'm a pediatric dentist. And, uh, I mean, you would think that I'm murdering him every morning and night when I'm brushing his teeth. But, I mean, there's one thing that we're going to establish that I always tell him, like, you know, we're going to establish is that, you know, whether you want to do this or not, I mean, this, I'm trying to help you out. This is going to get done. You know, we're going to brush his teeth. So he it, eventually he's going to get to that point where this is going to be like, you know, rote memory where we're just going to do this every night and every morning. But I mean, you got to establish those habits, man, like the, the diet and the, and the frequency of brushing is, is key. All right, what about uh the x-rays? Like th- I mean, this this tiny child with these growing bones and growing organs, <laughs> you know, do I need to expose them to all this radiation? That oh, was well, man, now that you now that you put it like that. Well, I'm, that was beautifully <laughs> worded. Right. That was yeah. amazingly dramatic. Of course not. <laughs> no. I mean, Such so the a concerned thing is this, parent. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so I always tell parents this, you know, I can Clinically, I can look in the mouth and I can, and everything can look perfect. But unless I have like a diagnostic x-ray to see exactly what's going on in between the teeth, then I mean, I can tell you everything looks great, but I really need an x-ray to accurately diagnose. And a lot of the times what looks good on the outside is not good in between. And so, um, I, I do have, I, that is a very common thing that you, you do have a lot of parents who are concerned about x-rays. I let them know about you know, digital x-rays and the fact that, you know, it's it's way less radiation than your tradition, your conventional film that they used to use back in the day. And, we, you know, we go through all of that. But um, I, just, I do let them know the importance of me getting the diagnostic x-rays because I, I can't accurately diagnose what's going on without that. And for some of my patients, for the parents who are really concerned, you know, I try to have that middle ground where I say, hey, look, OK, let's take x-rays a day. Let's get a baseline. If I don't have any watch areas or areas I'm concerned about, if their hygiene is good, their diet is good, they don't have a high carry um, risk, then okay, maybe the next six months we'll skip x-rays and then we'll do them at that at a yearly interval. But most of the time, you know, after you explain about how you can't accurately diagnose without it, they're worried that there may be something in between. And so usually we're able to, to get x-rays every six months because baby teeth, man, they they it's like in a six month period, you can have a, a big change. You can go from no cavities to 10 cavities. I mean, do you ever, sorry, do you ever talk to no, them no. about the, um, about the TV or about, um, if they have a, like a iPod or, uh, anything like that, as far as the amount of radiation that they're exposed to, which is considerably more than what they would be exposed to from those dental radiographs. I was, I was trying to figure out where you're going with that. I was about to say, I was like, oh, man. We all were. <laughs> Screen no, time. I have not, but I, I, I'm going to probably use that. And once I look that up now. That yeah, look it, look it up before you use it. Yeah, it's I way just, more radiation. I just don't trust the way Gary <laughs> no, said it. No, it is, though. It is. I tell all the patients, when they ask me about the x-rays, I say, you see that, that monitor right there, the computer monitor that's right in front of your face? I'd be more concerned about that than these x-rays. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, good. All right. Now I got something to look up tonight. You mentioned uh, getting x-rays every six months on kids. Uh, Greg, as a, an insurance question, the insurances that I've dealt with, 
uh, are anywhere from one year, 18 months, some are even two year coverage uh, for frequency for you know, bite wing x-rays. Uh, is that generally increased for pediatrics? Yes. So typically you'll see uh, x-rays covered at a higher frequency for uh, uh, for uh, pediatrics where, um, you know, whereas on a general dentist, you know, an FMX and a pano, maybe every five years, sometimes three years, uh, bite wings once a year is pretty common, sometimes twice. Um, there are, there, there are pediatric, uh, there are plans um, for pediatric patients where there's no frequency on some x-rays. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's definitely better coverage um, for the pediatric dentist. So that's also maybe a potential incentive to see a pediatric dentist instead of a general dentist at that age, you know, so. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Wilkes, uh, for answering those questions. Really appreciate it. Let's move on yes, to sir. hygiene. Um, when it comes to, I mean, we're in the whole COVID situation right now, and I know the biggest discussion we have is using Cavitron or ultrasonic handpieces uh, and aerosol. What are your thoughts on that right now when it comes to hygienists using Cavitrons uh, and, you know, when it comes to the whole aerosol situation? Katrina? Uh, so uh, thank you so much for letting me represent hygiene, by the way. I'm like That's so honored. Good. I'm like in this chat room with all these doctors and it's <laughs> me. I'm like stoked on it. So um, first of all, I uh, there are a lot of things that we have known to be true about utilizing the ultrasonic unit that I think we just have not been following the rules on. So I always say this, like kind of my provocative idea, but like we've known for a long time that we need to use high volume evacuation with our ultrasonic instrumentation. Have we been doing that? Uh, the most recent uh, survey that I gathered was 84% of hygienists said, no, they were not doing that. So that's a problem. Um, have we been utilizing pre-procedural mouth rinses? Um, a, a vast majority of hygienists have said, no, they have not been administering that to their patients. So there are things that we have known that we've needed to do from a safety standpoint for a very long time. I think many of us prior to COVID were more concerned about bloodborne pathogens than we were about aerosols. And I say this because I am a speaker on infection control. And when I got to the section on like airborne pathogens, nobody cared what I had to say. So now, now everyone's like, remember that? Hi, my name is Julie. I was in Virginia two years ago when you lectured on blah, and now they want to know all about it, right? So the reality becomes since 2004, there's been research out about the things that we need to do to be safe and to be able to mitigate the risk associated with the propagation of infection from our aerosols. And we we just haven't done it. So now here we are today, 2020, and we're now refiguring out what that looks like. And these are things that we should have been doing from the get-go. We should have been wearing protective gowns. We should have been utilizing either, uh, you know, four-handed dentistry or high-volume evacs and things like that. From a safety standpoint, I will tell you this, I practice in the state of Arizona. We have um, the number one transmission rate as of the recording of this podcast um, for states. And I work in a perio practice where we see vulnerable, susceptible patients on a daily basis. I am wearing a level three with a um, shield over the front of it. I have an assistant utilizing high volume evacuation. Our patients are utilizing pre-procedural rinses. We are screening our patients before they come in. That's another provocative idea. How many times and I say this to the hygienist listening out there, like how many times did, uh, you know, our front desk come back and say, your 10 o'clock tried to cancel because they didn't feel well, but don't worry, I convinced them to come in because, you know, God forbid, you have that open <laughs> Thank you. Hour and like, Thanks, 
Dan, for doing that. Now I get to expose myself for an hour to this patient who's sick, right? Or I ask all of you, like, how many of you have like shoved cotton rolls up your nose because you you're dripping, but you go to work anyways, right? Like it's culturally, like, it's just been a thing that we do and we have to stop doing that. And I'll say this, like six months ago, if I would have called my employer and I would have said, I have a loss of sense of taste and smell and I have body aches. So I don't want to come into work today. You're kidding me. Right. My, my doctor would be like, get in here. Yeah. My doctors probably wouldn't. Cause they actually are amazing. They're incredible human beings. But I think most doctors would be like, you can't leave me high and dry with the schedule of patients. Right. So from a provocative standpoint, and I know we just kind of went down a weird rabbit hole. Sorry about that, guys. Um, but from a provocative standpoint, there are things that we should have been doing that we have not been doing. So as Dr. Maya Angelou says, do the best you can until you know better. And once you know better, do better, right? Oh, yeah. that was deep. We ended up. We ended up. Yeah. We ended up. We ended up. Yeah. podcast on that. Right. Yeah. Remember, remember we ended that? Yeah. We did. I said that. Oh, oh man, that was because now we know better. You know what I mean? Like now, now is the time for us to look at what we're doing in dentistry. And and I across the board, like patients expect dentistry to look different today. They do. They expect us to be wearing different things. They expect hand hygiene. Um, you know, the, the most recent research study that was done, by the way, 25% of dental professionals actually performed adequate hand hygiene prior to and concluding dental procedures. 25%. That's unacceptable. Unacceptable, right? Like, why are we not washing our hands, guys? Like, come on, you grossies out there. So my whole thing is like... I'm going to start calling people grossies. (laughs) 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 My whole thing is like, we have to be doing better. And now that we know, we now need to be moving forward with that. And that means so many different layers of things. I know we talked about insurance earlier and 100%, I think insurance is a layer to what we do in dentistry. It's what brings patients into the operatory. It's what gets them to come in for their free six month cleaning, which just sent chills up and down my spine. But the reality is I think now we have patients that are hyper-focused on risk assessment, risk factors. We have patients who are now understanding that there's a systemic relationship here. We, you know, I, I had mentioned it on previous podcast iterations, but it's true. Like we are telling people to cover their mouth to protect themselves from getting infection. Like we, now we need to be mindful of how dentistry is expected to change and now is the opportunity for us to really move forward in that did i answer your question about cavatrons oh uh, yes (laughs) (laughs) and and what my angelou said about about life no better do better i'm you know i'm not gonna lie to you that you wonder why you're representing hygiene that was it right there i I don't even know what to say that was awesome that was that was amazing. Let's <laughs> let's let's end this um, because we we're, we're going. I mean, we're almost past an hour. Uh, let's 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 just kind of talk about overall dentistry in general. Um, how do you how do you get patients to feel more comfortable? Actually, no. Let's let's do this. The the podcast was started because I felt like patients didn't trust dentists. What do we need to do for that? that trust to kind of be reestablished again, because I feel like a lot of patients feel like, Oh, we're just taking their money or we're just doing whatever is best for us. Right. Oh, that's why, Oh, did I pay for that Ben's outside? Or did I pay for this? Did I pay for that? How do we reestablish the trust that we've lost in, uh, in dentistry with patients? I and- think it starts with communication. Um, yes, you did pay for that outside. <laughs> 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 but, Today, guess what? You don't need a root canal. 
because your tooth is normal. Like, I mean, you know, I, I really think I have a lot of patients that come to me and uh, they they lack a, the knowledge or, or information that should have been given to them. So they come in my chair and I'm like, you know, what your dentist tell you about the tooth? They told me I need to come and see you. Like to me, that's a that's a huge failure yeah. uh, from the referring dentist standpoint because this patient has no understanding as to why they are here, why they're in my chair. Uh, so now I have to do that part, and then when I explain, I show them the picture, I show them the X-ray, I show them this, I explain, explain this, explain that. Exp- I might explain some perio stuff to them. Might explain some stuff about the crown, like all that stuff. And then they look at me and they're like, why didn't my dentist tell me all of this prior to sending me here? And then like, I honestly, I don't have the answer, right. you know? Right. And then, and then, it, and then I feel like in that, I feel like a bad person. And then uh, I'm, I'm sure they're thinking about their dentist as being a bad person as well. Right. So it's, it's, a, it's I'm a gonna situation. I'm going to put it back on the patient because I, I have sent patients to an endodontist saying, this is the x-ray, this is your infection. The patient goes, or I assume the patient goes, six months later, I ask the patient, hey, did you go see the the root canal specialist? Yeah, he just, he said, if it's not hurting, that I don't need to worry about it. So I call up the endodontist, I say, hey, I know you probably didn't say this, but did you tell the patient? No, no, I told him he needed to have the root canal done Mm -hmm. because he has infection. Well, it's the patient not taking responsibility for, you know, their own problems and uh, trying to get out of either the treatment or, you know, the responsibility of this is what they help to create. And I I will say that a lot of patients, unfortunately, are poor historians. It's a nice way of saying liar. That's a nice. That's very nice. That's a very nice way of saying liars. I will say I, I was, you know, um. I think that Dr. Dennis, when you said communication, you're right. I'll go a little bit further on that and I'll say, you know, and obviously I'm not a clinician, but uh, listen to the patients, you know, um, education is incredibly important. Um, Not all patients are going to be as patient with that. You know, I've used this analogy a bunch of times. Some, some of you probably heard me say it. You can't beat that patient over, over, over the head with your DDS or your DMD to get them to do treatment. It's not going to happen. You know, um, they uh, listen to them, you know, uh, many times uh, you guys are faced with patients who are pointing at the chip on number eight and you're like, all your molars are bombed out. You know, you've got to assure them you're going to address everything and you've got to listen to them, you know, in order to get them to, to consent to doing what needs to be done. Um, and, and, you know, if you listen or if, if, as you know, as people who work in dentistry, if we listen, um, you know, it'll let the patient know that we're paying attention and that, you know, you care and then they'll be more likely to say yes to everything, you know, or more of what you're diagnosing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I just want to, I want to weigh on something uh, yeah. from, from the hygiene side. Uh, I, I think it goes back to your philosophy of practice. Mm-hmm. And my philosophy of practice is I treat every patient in my chair, like a member of my family that I like. And that's important because I think at the end of the day, when like, I, that, I, that I like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, my, not my like weird sister, but I know I'm kidding. Um, but I know I do because, because when I sit down and I work with my patients, I really do like, I, 
I know this sounds weird, but like I see my dad in, you know, in this male patient that's sitting there that 100% has GERD and nobody has ever told this poor gentleman that he has GERD and he needs to be managing this. And, you know, he's got a malampetti classification of four and he's been snoring and his wife's been complaining about it, but like nobody's talked to him about, you know, GERD, obstructive disorders, things like that. And here I am as like the periodontal hygienist. I'm supposed to just look at his connective tissue graft he needs to have on number three. And I'm like, that, that makes me so sad. So I treat every patient in the chair like a member of my family. And I even honestly say to the patient, if you're my dad, if you're my uncle, and you sat in the chair with this, this is exactly what I would say to you. And I sit down. I mean, I used to take off my loops, take off my mask and do that and can't do that anymore. No, but, no. you know, I sit down knee to knee, eye to eye with my patient and I tell them that. Um, and then if it's a patient and I just had this last week where it was a very comprehensive case, I will send that patient a video of me. I will take off my mask and my, my loops. And it's literally, you see my face now. Cause some mm. of these patients, like they've never seen my face before. And, and there's a humanistic quality, what we do. And we forget about that sometimes. So I'll send a video of myself saying, hi, John, I'm Katrina. I'm your hygienist that you saw earlier today at AZ Perry. It was so great to meet you. I wanted to go over some of my, you know, um, treatment wow. modalities, some of the things that we talked about. I Here like are my that. concerns. Mm -hmm. um, let me know if you have any questions. Like, feel free to shoot me an email. I'm here for you. I'm here to support you, you know, be safe and be well. And, and I send that off. And honestly, the patients really appreciate that because now they can hear it again. They can hear it in a different way. They can, I don't know, play it for their loved ones. I don't know what they do with that. Who knows? But my Ooh. whole thing is like, it's an opportunity. <laughs> oh. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing with that. But my whole thing is like, it's an opportunity oh, for them man. to revisit that, right? Like patients are horrible historians. Yeah. Like they will complain about how terrible that root canal was. That was the worst thing ever. And you're like, when was that? And they're like, I don't know, like sometime. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, and you're like, oh, really? Like it's so, so for us to be able to provide that like extra layer for patients and really help them understand like patients at the end of the day, like they need to know that you care first and foremost. And if you can do that, the money, they, they will figure it out. And, and you'll even have patients that will say like, I just can't do it right now. And I, but I really want to, and I'm going to save up for it. And it matters to me and I'm going to do it. Right. Absolutely. So if you, if you can get back to that humanistic piece, take the loops off doctors. It's not about like number 30 and like the mesiobuccal canal. Um, you know what I mean? It's it's about the human attached to it and really connecting that person. I feel person. directed toward me. <laughs> Dr. Dennis, I'm just saying. You know, I think, I think that's that. And, and patients appreciate that. And, and at the end of the day, they can't ever complain that you're, you, yeah, they'll walk. First of all, don't park your Mercedes out in front with he, he like does. Dr. Dennis. Dr. Dennis you know what does I mean? Say. Like just park that, park it in the back way. So the patients don't even have to walk past your car. You know what I mean? But like, <laughs> I got a lot of stuff I got to carry in. I need to close I'm just saying, I'm sure. All right. Let's, let's, let me ask you this question. And uh, Dr. Wilkes, uh, I want to ask you this. What do you think the yeah. biggest problem in dentistry is right now? Subtract, mm. subtract COVID out of this because I feel like COVID, like you were saying, uh, Katrina, COVID has destroyed our personal uh, touch and contact with patients, right? Take that out of it. What is the biggest problem in dentistry right now? I mean, I would say, I mean, to me, I feel like it's, it's kind of exactly what you guys were, were talking about. I feel like a lot of people think dentists are, they think we're like crooks. We're money hungry. We're trying to do a whole lot of treatment that doesn't need to be done. And I mean, I, I essentially do exactly what you guys just said. Like, I try to come off as a human being. I don't, when I talk to my patients, yeah, I'm sure they see me as Dr. Wilkes, but I talk to them as if I'm a regular person trying to explain to you everything 
down to the the little minor details where you can explain where you can understand everything and that I'm not trying to do this to to get your money like I'm really telling you everything that is going on with your child and one of the things that I do I mean I don't know if you you know how many other dentists do it but I always tell my patients like if you have any questions or concerns about it or you if you just want to check go get a second opinion mm-hmm. like Go get a second opinion. Go get a third opinion. If I was having somebody come and do something to my house or to my car and I didn't, you know, whatever, I would get multiple, you know, opinions on it. So if if you feel like there's something that you don't understand, obviously you can call me. But if you're questioning it, go get a second opinion. And I would almost say 90 to uh, a very high percentage of those patients, I'll see them right back in my chair, like they're right back there. And they always tell me the same thing. They're like, hey, you know what? I trust you. Like, I, I trust everything you're saying to me. You explained everything to me. Um, you know, and, and but they'll tell some horror story about they went to some doc. They told them. And it's like you said, though, a lot of a lot of patients and parents are poor historians. So they'll tell these horror stories of where they went before and what was told to them and what they needed. But I mean, I think a lot of it is. A lot of the patient population just doesn't have a, a trust in dentists in general. They, I don't know why they think that we're just a lot of people are like crooks and they're out to get them. But I think the that's the biggest problem. Need. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Anybody uh, else? I think the biggest problem is insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Dumper. I, I agree. I agree. That downfall of dentistry is how dental insurance is set up. Yeah. Insurance, mm. hands down. I, 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 I agree. I don't think I can. I, <laughs> no, I just, I, and Greg I, deals I, with I, insurance I like all day. Be, no, I would like to add some more, you know, add some more content and disagree, but I can't. I mean, I've seen too many times, uh, you know, um, doctors and patients get caught in the middle, or you know, doctors or patients who expect the doctor to diagnose based on what the coverage is, and of course, the doctor shouldn't do that and doesn't do that, you know. Uh, I mean, we have, you know, we can go on and on about that, but yeah, I, I agree. I disagree. Oh, with what? I I disagree with insurance being the number one issue. Um, so, so what's your number one? Well, so a research study was done by Aura Pharma, um, last year, 300 patients that were all diagnosed with four quads of SRP plus local delivery of antibiotic Mm -hmm. and all 300 of these patients decline their treatment plan. So Aura Pharma wanted to know, why did you decline this treatment plan? Was it, you didn't have time, it was too painful, like you, the money, insurance didn't cover it. What, what was your number one? And of course, most I think most of us would assume the number one reason why people decline SRPs plus local delivery of antibiotic would be insurance or the money. And the number one reason, 87% of individuals said the number one reason is they did not trust their dental health care professional. That was Mm. the number one reason. Mm. Number two was they did not understand um, the exact uh, modality behind what that treatment was. Number three was they did not understand the negative ramifications of declining that treatment. Cost ranked fifth in that study. In fact, research has said that upwards of 70% of patients, if they knew they had an active infection in their mouth, they would be very likely to seek treatment from a dentist. The reality is, I think sometimes we um, we try to, I, I wrote an article one time called Sugar Coating is Decaying Your Practice, and it's true. I think we tend to, at least hygienists tend to sugarcoat things 
um, and and oftentimes don't color the picture of what's really happening in the patient's mouth and and the challenges and ramifications of the infection that they're experiencing. If you had asked me the number one uh, challenge in dentistry, I think it's the fact that we are not calibrated. And I hate to say it, but the reality is I know if I diagnose scaling and root planing on a patient and they decline, they won't because <laughs> it's me. Um, oh. but they- <laughs> All right. <laughs> I just have a face people don't say no to, you know what I mean? But if, if the patient did say no, we all know, we, we hate to admit it, but we all know there is a practice that patient could go to and get their profi that they want. Yes. So yes. the reality becomes we are not calibrated as an industry. Patients can get 10 different treatment plans depending on what offices they go to. I can present a case as a speaker to a room full of professionals and get 10 different options. The challenge becomes we're not calibrated. Right. And, and, and I get it. There's so many, uh, there's so many factors. We're not machines. There's a reason why computers can never do what we do because you can't just treatment plan based on one thing or, or, you know, or another, but the challenge becomes because we're not calibrated. The, the issue is patients will either move to a doctor where they're super duper conservative and they're perfectly fine with supervised neglect. And we all know that specialists out there, you see them, right? And then there's the other side of the coin, the doctors you really like working with that are the ones who are on the other side that that actively treat and refer immediately. And so there is such a spectrum in dentistry and that spectrum is creating a challenge with helping our patients understand the the necessity or the non-essential uh, uh, characters uh, behind what it is that we do in dentistry. Don't you think that spectrum is created by dental insurance? Um, I think it's a product of that. I think that individuals who do not value their dentistry will select the lower option on their, um, you know, uh, insurance options. And I think that individuals that really, really, really care about their dentistry and want the best will search the best doctor in town. And it doesn't matter if they have to fee for service out of pocket, um, they will do that. But the challenge becomes as a, a community, at least here in the United States, then you have such a wide spectrum. You have some doctors that are saying, I'm going to screen you for, you know, airway disorders, and I'm going to go ahead and take a, a DNA swab to find out what bacteria is in your mouth. And we're going to do laser bacterial reduction, and we're going to do preventive this, and we're going to put you on perioprotect, and we're going to da 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 like all these things, right? And then you have another office where they're like, yeah, let's go ahead and profile you up, and then we'll send you on your way. And so because of that, patients can just what level of excellence or lack thereof with which they choose to acquire their dental care, if that makes sense. Yes. Okay, let's 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 uh let's let's sum this up real quick. Okay. Um final question. And thank you everybody for coming on. I really do appreciate uh this panel for the hundredth episode. Final question. If you have kids or if you have, you know, nieces or nephews, would you advise them to go into dentistry or into the dental field? We'll start with well, um, Dr. Dennis, of course. Oh, sorry. No, no please. I no. out there. No, you did. Um, I mean, I think so. Yes or no? Ye- <laughs> yes. Okay. We'll explain. So I think that... Um, Everything that I've experienced in dentistry definitely is not what I expected the day I signed up to start my uh, 
or, or got into dental school. Like it's, 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 uh, been a, a super evolving, changing, uh, mechanism. Uh, but it has, um, it's still, I mean, it's a wonderful career. Don't get me wrong. It's a wonderful career, but I don't know if I, if I had to do it all over again, if this is the exact path that I would have chosen, uh, if I had to do it again, okay. now that I've done it, I did it. Great. But, <laughs> you know, but like, I mean, there's, 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 I mean, I definitely think that, um, I would definitely push toward healthcare. Uh, but I don't know if I, if I would, you know, dentistry would be the, the one only thing, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm about science. I'm about helping people. So healthcare naturally is, is what, you know, I would lead to. Uh, so I would steer toward that, but I don't know if dentistry itself would be the, the venue, but granted it is a wonderful, wonderful, uh, career. And there's a lot of opportunity, especially to uh, govern oneself as opposed to like medicine. But that's, that's just my personal opinion. Okay. I'm not sure what the answer was. I, so, <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Uh, anybody else? Would you recommend your, you know, your child or someone that you care and love about to go into dentistry? Uh, oh. Freddie, please. Yep. Uh, I mean, I would say, I mean, if they were, they would have to just be really, really interested in it. I mean, because my thing is, you have to start weighing out too the the cost of the actual like education into what you're doing. I mean, the loan amounts. Like, I just wrote a rec for this kid, and I mean, he's we're talking about like six hundred and seven hundred thousand dollars worth of like student loans. So I mean, if you're really if you're really passionate about it and you love it and that's what you want to do, and you're sure about it, I mean, yeah, then go for it. You know, I, and I don't you have a rich uncle. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, but it's kind of like how Gary said. Like I, I mean, I love what I do. Um, it is really rewarding. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. My my AirPods went out. Oh. Yes, they did. I guess I'll weigh in um, really fast. Uh, so I, I, I don't have kids, but I have dogs. So they don't have opposable thumbs. So my suggestion to them would be to do dentistry. Um, but I honestly, it makes me sad. I, as as a hygienist, there are a lot of hygiene forums and, you know, young um, young high school aged individuals will come on and they'll say, you know, hey, I'm really interested in hygiene. I'd, I'd like to do hygiene. And, um, and I can't tell you how many hygienists say, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And that makes me really sad because I think, um, for hygienists, it's a bit different. The, the student loan debt is not there. Like it is for you. I mean, doctors and specialists, especially like that's, that's, you are amazing. I mean, that's, it it truly is, um, incredible. And it, it makes me sad when a patient is like, oh yeah, I'm going to pay for the doctor's new yacht. And I'm like, okay, the doctor's still paying off his student loans. Like you can calm down. But, um, you know, I, I think for hygienists, 
<laughs> hygienists especially, um, you know, what we do is so, so um, raw and honest and humanistic and, and it cannot be replaced by computers, as I mentioned earlier. And it, it's, I'm very fortunate, very lucky to be able to work in the healthcare field, but also I didn't have to work 4th of July. And I am considered a healthcare worker, but I was not directly exposed in the COVID units like nurses have to. I mean, there are opportunities that we have in dentistry to be able to empower and to improve people's lives, but not be as involved as other healthcare workers. Like I don't have to like deal with, you know, feces and things like that. So, um, I mean, the pediatric dentist may have something <laughs> different to say, but, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I love what I do. I'm very grateful for it. And if I could do it over again, I would 100% do everything I did over again, for sure. Perfect. That's wonderful to hear. That's actually good. Excellent. Well, we're going to end it here. Uh, it's, it's been an amazing, um, forum. It's been an amazing panel. I definitely appreciate everybody for being on again. Cause again, like I said, you guys are uh, alums, you know, to tooth be told. And I, I honestly didn't think this was going to go past like 10 episodes and we're at a hundred. So I definitely appreciate everybody that's been listening and everybody has come on and, and just allowed people to learn from everybody here. So thank you guys. Appreciate you. Have a good night. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Tooth Be Told. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at realdentist with an S at gmail.com. That's realdentist, R-E-A-L, dentist with an S at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions on this podcast are just that, our professional opinions. The final decision about your health should be made by you and a trusted dental professional.